Chapter 22, Resurrection and Related Subjects. Once listening to a call-in Bible radio program, I was intrigued to hear an answer given to a caller concerning the two resurrections in Revelation 20. This man with the Bible answers was at a loss of words and told the caller he had also recently noticed these resurrections and had planned to look into them. Understanding the resurrections were a major foundational first century belief, it really came as quite a shock that this respected Christian Bible teacher, answer man, didn't have a clue about them. After all, the resurrections are a major key to understanding the Bible and what Yahweh is doing. As far as I know, there are no large Christian denominations that understand and teach the resurrections for what they are, but without them, it's impossible to understand much of anything of Yahweh's plan for us. That said, just what are those resurrections and what do they have to do with us and or Christianity? After all, if we all possess an immortal soul, uh, which is a leading Christian teaching, why on earth do we need the resurrections in the first place? But our merciful Father Creator is the God of second chances. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, And as it is appointed to die once, but after this, the judgment. Actually, what that scripture in Hebrews is telling us, we are allowed to choose death once, even by default, and still be resurrected. And as Revelation 20.14 affirms, the second choosing of death will be the final one to be thrown into the lake of fire. The real problem here is the demons want us dead and have been feeding us the lie we must die. <clears throat> After all, if death only means changing places, death is acceptable, right? The bottom line is if the demons can convince us, that is convince us, that we don't have the choice of physical immortality, we accept death by default. In other words, if we don't believe we can choose life, that is immortality, we simply die without question. I believe the demons are hoping beyond hope that Yahweh's lying about his promise of resurrection, just as they're constantly lying. Unfortunately, uh, Christianity's born-again doctrine, besides heaven and hell, is probably the leading false doctrine replacing the truth of the resurrections which makes it the best place to begin our investigation. My first experience with a born-again was in my mid-twenties with a young man on our construction crew who was extremely zealous concerning his calling to preach salvation to the unsaved and to be born again. To be honest, the rest of, him, the rest of us found him extremely annoying, to say the least, especially considering the scriptures tell us we will know them by their fruits. Giving depth to that scripture is 1 John 3, 9, where it says, Whoever has been born of God, or born again, does not sin. For his seed remains him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. He cannot sin. Hmm. How telling to see the scripture in view of what that young man's behavior. You see, one day at a fast food restaurant, he met a young woman with whom he was caught in bed by his roommate not long after, which is another member of our crew. I don't know this young man's justifications, but scripture is quite clear on the matter of fornication, or adultery being sin. Shortly after that, I caught myself caught him stealing a case of material from one of our jobs. Again, I thought stealing was also a sin, and those born again of Yahweh could not sin. 
that this young man was so insistent that we must be born again and saved like he was. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 admonishes us to not be deceived that neither fornicators nor thieves shall inherit the kingdom of God or Yahweh. Obviously, there was something very wrong with that young man's born-again, can belief system when compared to the scripture. Consequently, every time I now hear someone preaching how we must be born again to be saved, a red flag goes up. By their fruits, we know if they fit into that list of those not inheriting the kingdom. Again, according to 1 John 3, 9, it's impossible to be born again and still practice sin as every self-proclaimed born-again person does. Honestly, the truth is so simple. All we have to do is read the rest of the story, Yeshua's explanation to Nicodemus about being born again. That's in John 3, verses 5 through 6. He says there, Yeshua, Most assuredly I say to you, that unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I have said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Ah, look at that. They will be like the wind. They will be invisible. You can hear them or see fruits of them, but yeah, they are now spirit. We were born of flesh, we are flesh, and when we born of spirit, we are now literal spirit. Yeshua's plain explanation leaves no room for any if, ands, or buts. Emphasis on buts. People who deceive themselves, and anyone who will listen, that they're born again, are not like the wind, and are simply liars and windbags. Pardon the pun. Speaking of windbags, the man with the Bible answers later concluded that the resurrections were only about people getting their bodies back after returning from heaven with Jesus. Really? Why on earth do the saints who have been living in heaven for up to a couple thousand years now suddenly need a body? Pun intended. Along with Christianity's short-sighted and problematic perspectives of being born again is their teaching of an immortal soul. Is it really true that we, our souls, don't die but simply change places? Does scripture actually teach this doctrine that virtually every major religion on earth also believes and teaches? Just where does this doctrine of an immortal soul originate anyway? Is the term immortal soul even found in the Bible? Most of the Christian churches have been led to believe it is, but the truth is no, it is not. In fact, it's not found anywhere in the Bible. With that in mind, the teaching of the immortal soul is problematic on so many levels, it's hard to know where to even begin. So let's start in Ezekiel 18.4, verse 20, where the prophet Ezekiel states, The soul, notice that, the soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins shall die. Not live forever in heaven or hell. No, it says the soul that sins will die. Those are very strong and dogmatic words indeed. If we're to believe Ezekiel, who long predated Christianity, we have to accept the soul is not immortal at all, but dies. In fact, the wisest man in history backs up this truth where he states in Ecclesiastes 9.5, For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing.
They're not living in heaven or living in hell with their brains still working. No, they know nothing. According to the wisest man who ever lived. If the wisest man in history believed the dead are actually dead, how smart are we to contradict him? That said, if we are wise enough to accept Solomon's words, the dead know nothing, they obviously cannot be alive or conscious in either heaven or hell. That said, there's something called the law of firsts, which is an imperative to keep in mind with Scripture. What that means is the oldest versions of Scriptures, or any writings for that matter, are the most credible, as with Ezekiel. In fact, the New Testament is founded upon the Old, quoting it literally hundreds of times. It does not make the Old obsolete, but establishes it. The immortal soul doctrine is the oldest and most widely accepted doctrine on earth, taught by virtually every religion. Interestingly, if we go back to Genesis 3, we find the actual source of this pagan doctrine. There we see two choices presented to Adam and Eve. They were told by Yahweh they could freely eat of the tree of life, but were advised not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as it would be a death sentence. This presents an ironic question. What possibly could have possessed Adam and Eve to choose death over immortality? That's a good question, with the answer found in the lie that the Nahash or the dragon told them. Let's take a look at that lie the dragon used to convince Eve to choose death over life, even after Yahweh instructed them to choose life. That's Genesis 3 verse 1. It says there, Now the dragon was more cunning or crafty and deceptive than any creature of the field which the Creator had made. And he said to the woman, Is Yahweh indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman replied to the dragon, the Nahash, We may partake of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, Yahweh has said, You shall not partake of it, lest you die. And the dragon said to the woman, You will not surely die. For, the, for God knows that in the day you partake of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's, knowing good and evil. Right there, we have the doctrine of the immortal soul, or lie, first spelled out. Eve and Adam did not choose the tree of life because they believed the dragon's immortal lie, which has since been taught in some form by virtually every religion on earth. The defected watchers hate Yahweh with every fiber of their being and are doing any and all in their power to derail and or destroy what he's doing, that is, creating his family. Again, knowing death is really dead, the evil angels or rebellious watchers will tell any lie and employ whatever means in their power just to get us there. That is dead. Upon believing the immortal lie and dying, you can be sure the demons rejoice. But they still have one last battle, which is to keep us dead. Unfortunately for them, and fortunately for us, the Creator has a backup plan, which again are the resurrections. No matter what lie humanity swallows in ignorance, they can or will be resurrected to be taught the truth, and once more be given the chance to choose life versus death. The truth is death becomes meaningless if you possess an immortal soul. Again, and obviously, if immortality of the soul is true and you don't, simply, don't die, simply change places, it's not death. Again, immortal soul is not found in the Bible, which in fact teaches the opposite. With the immortal eye in mind, 
it only makes sense to examine the flip side of that coin, the idea that when we die, we don't go to heaven and we go to hell. Just where did Christianity get its concept of hell anyway? In the late 1200s to the early 1300s, a, a, name, a man named Dante Alighieri, who was a poet, had a vision from which he composed some of his canticles called Inferno, Inferno and Purgatorio. And it was from these canticles that modern Christianity gleaned much of its modern concepts of hell. The question is, do Dante's strange visions conform with the scriptures, or were they just in vain imaginations the demons offered up in their great deception? If we look into the Bible dictionary, such as Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, we find three chief words, that is from the oldest text, from which the modern word hell has been translated. The first is the Hebrew word sheol, meaning grave or pit. Then we have the Greek word Hades in the New Testament, which also means grave or place of the departed, literally underground. There is also the mythical Tartarus, supposedly a part of Hades, basically meaning the same thing, but used only once in the New Testament. And lastly, we have the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Hinnom, or Gehinnom, which is the Greek transliteration. Gehinnom was a valley just outside of Jerusalem where the city trash was dumped and burned. In fact, criminals and street people and those without family were burned upon death with the trash. Of course, that fire was always burning. That historical fact was very influential in developing Dante's concept of ever-burning hell. And as pointed out in an earlier chapter, the late Bible historian Ernest Martin points out the word hell is simply an old English word for whole. In fact, for well over a thousand years, hell was a place people kept their potatoes and apples during the winter from spoiling in the summer. With the concept in mind, there is even a country named Hell Land. The name has been anglicized to the modern name Holland, but it was given that name because it was below sea level. Hell Land. Bottom line, hell is where you kept or buried things like dead people, or worst case, the city dump where you throw your trash to be burned. That is hellfire. <clears throat> that said, let's go back and take a more bird's eye look at Christianity's concept of hell. After all, how is it possible for Christianity who professes to believe in a God of mercy to accept people would be sent to a place of torture, not just for a time, but eternity, simply for committing such horrid sins as not accepting Christianity's favorite Greek God, Jesus? Of course, that leaves one wondering about the millions, or billions actually, who have never in their lives even heard that name, which of course did not exist until the 15th century. <clears throat> you know, torturous atrocities committed during war times are shocking and loudly and rightly condemned. And Christianity, after condemning such terrible acts as in physical war, would ask us in turn to worship a horrifically sadistic God who sentences millions, oh no wait, billions, to eternal torture? Seriously? You would think any sane person would want to get as far away from that horrific God as possible. Such a God makes dictators such as Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, and others who tortured and slaughtered millions look like saints. Again, why on earth would anyone preach and expect people to accept such a grotesque demigod? In fact, I gasp in amazement to see the astonishing lengths Christian preachers will go to protect this twisted and hellish belief and the God who authored it. 
The truth is, there's no direct scriptural support for that heinous teaching, forcing those supporting it to resort to major private interpretation, like making the purely metaphoric language of parables, such as Lazarus and the rich man, literal. But we're told in Matthew 13:34 that Yahweh only spoke in parables so the people would not understand. We see that in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 13. Hell supporters attempting to make the parable of Lazarus literal is about as silly as making the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, Yeshua's literal body and blood, which of course would be cannibalism. Oh, yeah, and there's also the absurd attempt to justify the Christian hell using the immortal maggots of Mark 9.46. There we find the metaphorical statement that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this cannot be talking about an eternal hellfire. First of all, why do these worms that do not die, which are immortal, still need flesh bodies to eat? Besides, those in hell left their bodies in the grave and don't have bodies for these immortal worms to eat anyway. Plus, considering fire quickly kills worms, it means these worms must also have immortal souls. But that would place human beings on the same level as maggots? Huh, I guess that would make Christian beliefs pretty much the same as the Hindus. But how does that work? Were the immortal worms of Mark 5, were they sent to hell to be tortured for eternity for their sins also? Or is hell actually heaven for these immortal maggots? Well, <laughs> apparently only Christianity has the answer to that question. <clears throat> Personally, I refuse to accept Christianity's obscene God of hellfire and choose to worship a God of mercy, such as the one the scriptures show us. In fact, mercy is one of his titles as we see in Psalm 106 verse 1. It says there, Praise Yahweh, O give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Not torture, Mercy. What an intrepid statement considering Christianity's conviction that he is the kind of God that tortures people for eternity. How can torturing people for eternity in any way, shape, or form be construed as merciful? The creator Yahweh I've come to know and love would never inflict that kind of horror upon anyone, no matter what their sin. No, Yahweh's idea of death is simple. Simple lights out, which is a trillion times more merciful than eternity of torture. In fact, true loving mercy is the whole point of Yahweh's plan of two resurrections. He's the merciful God of second chances. Let's look at just one more scripture that weighs heavily against Christianity's ridiculous argument for the wicked being sent to Dante's hell. Malachi 4.3 states, You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. How can the wicked be ashes under the feet of the righteous if they are living forever in hell? How ridiculous. There can only be one conclusion for Christianity to teach such a hellish concept. That is the leverage of fear to empower themselves and control their membership. Not to mention to keep the money coming in. We also have the problem with the sinless Messiah going to hell after he was crucified. Is there a Christian hell? How is it a perfect or sinless Messiah went there, if there is a Christian hell? Notice what Yeshua told his disciples in Matthew 12, 40. 
that the only sign he would give them would be he would be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Again, according to the literal meanings of Hades, that would be in the earth, that would be in the grave. Is the heart of the earth not where hell is supposed to be? Then in Ephesians 4.9, we find the author commenting on how Yeshua led or led the captivity, led captivity captive after first descending into the lower parts of the earth. Again, uh, would that not constitute hell? The answer to this seemingly major problem that sinless Hebrew Messiah went to hell is so simple when we understand hell or Hades simply means grave or in the ground. The reference to leading captivity captive is Yeshua's leading the resurrection of the saints in Matthew 27, verse 52-53, out of their imprisonment of death. They were being held captive by death, which was overcome by Yeshua's death and resurrection. Death could no longer hold them, and they rose from their graves, not Dante's hell. One last thought, since virtually all religions who believe in hell as a place of torture agree on only one aspect of hell, that it's a separation from the Creator. But if God is omnipresent, as Christianity teaches, such a separation would be impossible. Well, impossible except for one condition, which would be literal death, which is exactly what Yahweh's scriptures teach. The bottom line is, do not reap death, that is from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We need only embrace the tree of life. That would be our creators and their Torah's instruction for loving behavior. Once we do that, every tiny detail of our lives will be taken care of, which removes any reason for fretting and or worrying. What an amazing life awaits us if we choose it. But before moving on from this chapter, one last note is to be understood. Exactly where death or hell originated. Well, we find the origin in Isaiah 14.12, where it is stated, How you are fallen from heaven, O Hellel, son of the morning. It goes on to say in verse 13, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven and exalt my throne above the stars, or angels, of Yahweh. I will be like the Most High. Revelation 12 picks up the story from there of the war in heaven where the dragon, Hillel, went to war against Yahweh's angels and lost and was cast to the earth. Ezekiel 28 adds more details to that solar system changing event, but the most interesting part is how Hillel, literally meaning God of death, is changed to Lucifer, which we mentioned before, meaning bringer of light. How amazing to find a scripture in 2 Corinthians 11:14 telling us and no wonder for Satan or Hillel himself is transformed into an angel of light. That's exactly what this creature accomplished with Jerome and having him change its name to Lucifer versus Hillel. Again, after losing its battle against Yahweh and its angels, this creature or dragon was cast to earth and was found lurking in the Garden of Eden seeking vengeance. By tricking Eve and Adam into partaking of its spirit of pride, it brought death to mankind. This creature quite literally is the god of death or hell. -el. 